This episode is brought to you by the Arvada Center because they're kicking off their summer concert series in June. Relax under the stars at the Arvada Center's outdoor amphitheater and take in acts like Melissa Etheridge, Big Richard, Tower of Power, Preservation Hall Jazz Band, The Spin Doctors, and so much more. Concerts are scheduled for June through September. You can find a whole schedule of events and get your tickets today at arvadacenter.org. That's arvadacenter.org. Today on CityCast Denver. There's a massive report out from History Colorado this month documenting the tragic history of Indian boarding schools across our state. But while our elected officials are celebrating the report as a positive step towards healing and reconciliation, many indigenous people are not. So today, I'm asking why. Today is Wednesday, October 18th. I'm Bree Davies, and here's what Denver's talking about. Joshua Emerson, welcome back to the show. Hi, Bree. How are you doing today? Great. And today we're joined by your co-chair of the Denver American Indian Commission and returning guest, Raven Payment. Welcome back, Raven. Thanks. Glad to be here. So we're talking about this massive report, which came out a couple weeks ago about um, Indian boarding schools here in Colorado. Raven, I mean, first of all, bigger picture, why is this report a big deal? Yeah, so the report specifically in terms of Colorado, and there's a larger national movement that comes out of um, Secretary of the Interior's office, Deb Holland. Um, we're talking about a 150-year legacy of genocide and assimilation that was meant to assimilate Native people into Euro-Christian white culture that affects any Native person that you know today. Not a single one of us is unaffected by this policy. And one of the things I like to emphasize is that this isn't just historical. This is very much a contemporary issue. The last boarding school was closed when I was 14 years old, for example. Wow. So that was like, I'm guessing in the 90s? 1996, to be specific. Mm -hmm. Um, I will point out there are other schools from that legacy that are in operation. They're Mission has changed a little bit, but we're still talking about religious institutions that are operating under convert or graduate. Yeah. So this report looked back at this history. I, I guess, could you, maybe Joshua, both of you, could you describe what was in the report or why we're talking about it now? Because it's something we knew about, obviously. But what, how did we get here? Sure, absolutely. So it started with Fort Lewis. Um, they uh, got a new president, President Stridicus. And um, it's Fort Lewis, if you don't know, they give tuition waivers for Native Americans to go to school there. They put out more Native American baccalaureates than any other institution. But as a part of that, the reason why they do that is that they started as an Indian boarding school. And so... There was this big thing of, you know, you do this good thing, you, you're educating all these Native Americans, but then the Natives, they get educated and they realize, look at this really dark negative history that is at the core of this school. Part of the reason why you're giving tuition waivers is this negative history that you've been a part of. And so Fort Lewis started to meet with the community and, and then they really pushed uh, at the state level to sort of get this report to find out about their own history for reconciliation because that's... That's really the only way that you can sort of move forward in the healing process. And so that started back uh, in like 2021 is when some of the first meetings were happening. And it's come into this report, um, uh, which got released uh, a couple weeks ago. And 
in it, it sort of talks about all the different Indian boarding schools that were in the state of Colorado. Um, it has a bunch of different chapters uh, about uh, about it. Uh, it. It's long. Uh, it's worth reading. I, I would say, and, I, and let me know if you agree with this, Raven, that the the way it was written is kind of cold. Um, it doesn't feel uh, like it doesn't in terms of the actual hurt that was done by these institutions, uh, the actual cultural genocide. It, it feels a little bit light on that. It feels mm-hmm. like there that that the entire report you're sort of dancing around the fact of how negative. Uh, you know, people died here. People got measles. People were the forced, brutality of it. Well, well, forced to do agricultural work to make the school sustainable. That was a part of the way these schools were designed. Is that you were going to force these for native f- children for la- forced labor out of children, which is not great, right. you know. So yeah. Um, but I want to talk more about the report because this was this is a huge undertaking. But it was also like um, I, I felt I, I wasn't sure what to take from it as a person reading it from the outside. And so you um, were both at the monthly meeting of Denver's American Indian Commission last week. And this was the first time the commission had met since the report was released. Can you tell me what happened there? What was the response? And uh, Yeah, it was pretty charged meeting. Um, I think there's a couple of things that were brought up. One, there wasn't a lot of uh, natives included in the research of uh, the report uh, initially. Um, the company that did, that uh, got the funding to do the research was a non-native company, a very large company. Uh, yeah, and uh, that's very frustrating. Um, we're at the point now where we do have natives that can do this type of research, and to to not include uh, one of them is is crazy. It feels it feels weird. It's it feels like we're in 1985, um, and, and then then it's an expensive it's an expensive report that that you sort of. The community cares about this, and so you sort of want the community involved in creating this. And we are only going to get so many chances to know, to, to try to find out the truth. Uh, I, talking about there's so many graves out there with with Native children that we want back, yeah. that were taken unfairly, unjustly, uh, that that we want to honor them, um, especially with all the hurt that they went through, that 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 it's just it feels weird and then just the um just the coverage of the report that all these non-natives talking about how this is such a positive step this is not yeah. the time to celebrate this is horrifying and the more you learn about it, the more horrifying it is this is just one step in a very early on in the process we, this isn't this 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 is only a good thing if we're able to find out more true things and then get to the actual reconciliation of it that's the only way that this is a good thing and so raven yeah. what did you see from your community in that meeting when the report was released um honestly i i see re-traumatization you know mm-hmm. again all of our commission members have a legacy where our families went to boarding schools. I'm the first in four generations not to attend one. Joshua mentioned, you know, his mother went to one. And all of our commission members have similar stories. So when we read this report, we know we're entering a harmful space no matter what. But the lack of Indigenous-led and Indigenous-centered perspective is prevalent within this report, which perpetuates further harm. It re-traumatizes. There's one particular phrase within that report that talks about their marching band and their school paper and how this must have sparked more joy Mm -hmm. than daily hard labor. And I'm like, okay, Marie Kondo, like inappropriate for one. Um, You know, secondly, Joshua was talking about the money, you know, so $618,000 went to research. 
Um, and they only had one native researcher, and that researcher was contracted under AECOM, which is one of the largest engineering firms in the world. So we have this group of people who are either directly descended from um, the people who operated and developed these institutions, or at the very least benefit from these institutions, are now funneling money within their communities and furthering the the oppression, for lack of a, a better buzzword. Um, you know, these were white individuals, and it was white Christian individuals that established these schools in the first place. So to not empower and uplift our communities and our consultants and our perspectives is incredibly harmful. And those concerns go to talking to our survivors. If they can't even write a report that is culturally sensitive and appropriate, mm -hmm. what are they going to do to our survivors that have firsthand endured these horrors and these traumas? And why would survivors want to talk to somebody who doesn't like I, I have a friend whose grandma's a survivor of the boarding schools as well, and her grandma won't even talk to her about it. It's so, it's so still fresh and traumatic. But I can't imagine sitting down with someone who looks like me, and being like, "Please tell me all of your trauma and everything that happened." You know what I mean? Just lay it out, and like I can see where that would impact the research. Like you're saying, do you both feel like this report is kind of like? not null and void, but like it's was kind of wrong from the jump. Like, how do you see? How do you see this report? I yeah, it's flawed. It's it's flawed, and it was expensive, and it's weird to be at this point where uh, you you wish things were done a little bit differently in the beginning. They 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 did reach out to to, to tribes, but the way the way that they reach out it, it feels very like superficial and it also feels like though they 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 do it as a way to check off uh, box. that that box being like oh we did do this thing we sent some emails and there's no i mean there's community here in denver there's community down in uh you know by fort lewis there's 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 natives with firsthand experience with this that how are they not a more a part of this conversation it seems like these uh <laughs> and, and, and it's it's frustrating as a native because so much of what's written about you in academia is written by non-natives. Um, they didn't and, even have good snacks. Uh, the food is a big deal. Like that, the, and, this, that, I, <laughs> and this is the late afternoon yeah. session. So you have served these foreign dignitaries <laughs> crappy snacks all day in a Here's crappy trail mix. conference room yeah. by the IRS building. And then you want to know about genocidal maniacs. Let's talk genocide. Is everybody good? You got yeah. your Do you, you want that Nature Valley a... granola bar? that like just leaves crumbs everywhere. I've seen natives talk about how bad the food was about at a conference like seven years ago. That's the stuff. Oh, it's that, not like it's like, going to get yeah. in. That's like what people remember. So it's like, and it's, if you knew a native, they would have told you that. Be like, yo, can we just get like a hoagie or something like that? Like, I mean, Jimmy John's at the very least, <laughs> like bare minimum. He's oh. like Costco, like Dollar General Nature Valley snacks oh, in a box man. in the corner. So rude. Yeah. So rude. <laughs> Do you feel like there's a positive from it at all? Or at least a a step or a I I don't know. I don't Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> it, the fact that we're talking about it is that's great. The fact that we're not done, that's great. Um it, it, there's uh, I mean, that, that's about it, though. You know what I mean? The fact that there's still an opportunity to try to 
um, build that trust over again. This is such exhausting work to try to work with uh, with native communities to try to build that trust with non-native institutions. Um, but that for me, that's the way you build empathy and that's the way that you create community. Um, and so that's that's what I would look for uh, for the future. What about you, Raven? I like to drink from a cup with a little more nihilism in there. Um, I, I mean, I use the term cautious optimism. So understanding that this report was born from a House bill um, and understanding the intent of the sponsors for that. Um, one of them actually co-sponsored the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Relatives Bill. So understanding that the intent was to do something good and to at least start the the wheels of restoration and reconciliation um, for this horrible legacy um, that said, intent does not equate to impact. Um, mm. And I mean, even during the process, you know, they were bringing in stakeholder listening sessions for like our commission and asking for a response turnaround in like three days so they could go talk to other tribal nations, which they're not actually looking for meaningful input or consultation, especially with such a traumatic topic. Um, you know, that was that was pretty wholly inappropriate. And despite the aggressive timeline that was outlined in the report, there always could be a better job done there. Um, again, you know, they identify 22 tribal affiliations from nations in this report, and they said that they had consultations with 33 um, nations total in trying to develop um, consensus and outreach for this report. They officially outline nine schools. However, even in the stakeholder listening session, they were missing two schools. There are actually 11, which was identified through Deb Holland's task force on the national side. So, I mean, that's something that is found with a Google search. Um, but yet mm -hmm. we're throwing over a million dollars at this report with people with big fancy suffixes after their name. Um, can pull this together. So while it is, to Josh's point, great that we're talking about it and people are learning about it so that we can move forward, it's still frustrating to have to beat our heads against the wall for them to recognize the lack of humanity in their process when they're engaging with our communities. Yeah, I'm thinking about that quote on community engagement scenario, which I've been in so many times when I worked in planning. And it's just like, here's a set of rules, get all this information out of these people, turn it around, put it in a report. And it's like, Oh, you're asking people to reprocess really intense things and they're sitting in a conference room like a bunch of strangers like it's mm. I can see where that would be really traumatic. Um, Joshua, you brought up trust, this idea of trust. And I know when it comes to History Colorado, which was a partner on this report, this is, has been an issue with them in the past and the, and the Native community um, because they recently sort of reopened their Sand Creek Massacre exhibit after I think 10, 10 years um, it was closed and there was outcry about it. I just wonder how does trust exist here with an institution like History Colorado when the past recent past has been pretty rough? I think part of it is empowering Native leaders. Um, and so uh, History of Colorado, obviously, uh, that <laughs> not a great history, uh, but they are actively trying to change that. And they are actively hiring people to try to change that. I think we're at a place where we do have Native leaders in these areas. And that's, and that's really what I would like to see going forward is empowering Native leaders to help galvanize the community because the trust isn't going to be in the institution. It's going to be with the individuals that have built that trust. Native trust is so hard to develop that that it's hard to it's hard to believe that you're going to do it without Native leadership helping. 
And so that's that's what I would advise is is find and empower the native leaders that have have already are already doing the work every day when they go and they, they have coffee conversation or well, what can I do you know while I'm here uh, it, that type of real community that exists here in Denver and, and in other places but yeah find the native leaders yeah. Raven what how do you feel about this the role of this institution the the history Colorado like the museum is a part of this um. I mean, I'm I'm on par with Josh. Trust is never within the institution, whether it's History Colorado or the governor's office. Um, when we were working on the MMIR bill, Governor Polis had actually asked me, well, what makes you think that you can trust us? And the, the idea was never that we trust the government or we trust the institution. I trust our community to not just have a seat at the table, but make the table work for our community um, and do what's right to uplift and empower our community. Um, History Colorado has made hires of Native community members, which is incredible, and I'm looking forward to seeing what they're going to do, um, again, with that seat at the table. Um, And similarly, I hope that, you know, this criticism towards this report lends them to do better outreach and engagement and not just outreach so they can rewrite our words, but outreach in terms of bringing us into the table to help facilitate these reports if they're going to pursue legislation in the next session. Do you think that they're going to they could restart or start over or like what do you, it's, what do you it's think? It's one of the recommendations okay. in the executive summary that they are going to go back this next session and ask for a multi-year, multi-million dollar project to move forward. And that's where my biggest concern lies, because within that recommendation is for them to conduct oral history and interviews um, with survivors and community feedback and the preliminary um, outreach that they did wasn't great. In terms of? what they got or like how people felt about it? Um, Yeah, there was attendance um, from some of their representatives at an Orange Shirt Day event in 2021, I believe, um, during a survivor's talking circle that was interpreted as pretty harmful. Um, And then this report just kind of backs that up. So, I mean, going back to the trust, like the leaders at the table right now who are non-natives, there is no trust in them to do the right thing. But if they're going to allow our community to lead and do that work, then I think they could have something truly special and impactful to actually make change and and do better for all of us who've had to endure this legacy. So beyond like the report itself, I I think we've talked a little bit about this, like the recovery of culture and um, what was lost, as you've pointed out, through this forced assimilation? Um, there's, how do we do? Is that something that the state can even do? Is that something that can be facilitated? So at, at the old fort uh, down in Durango right now, uh, there's a Navajo man. He's 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 put in all of this like squash and and corn and and has built this huge farm. Has native workers on it. It goes back to Fort Lewis College and. And I, I guess what I say with that is that no, there's this, this report is one step in the final process. What matters is one finding out the information, and then two starting to take the actions to start the reconciliation of it. And it's the actions that are taken from this the report, the final report, um, that that are so incredibly important. This is a long process. It's an important process as we learn how to heal the scars of this country. And it, it, it's, it's so necessary um, to, it's, there's just so much trauma and hurt built in between natives and non-natives. And it's going to be hard and long. And I think it's worth doing. Yeah. So. 
What does that look like to you, Raven? Or do you think it's a pot? Is it something that the state should be or could be facilitating? Uh, facilitating is a loaded word to me, yeah. just yeah. because, again, yeah. centering and right. letting our community lead to me is is tantamount. But I mean, truthfully, those dollars should be allocated this in in our direction, essentially, to do this. Um, when you talk about Joshua was talking about the agricultural, essentially the slave labor of these native students that were a to make the school operational mm-hmm. in some cases to make the school um, profitable. But then they had these outing camps in which they would have native students go and work for white families to do whatever they needed, laundry, housekeeping, chopping wood. And then these families would send the money back to the schools and the school would hold on to it for the students. And in most cases, the school would just spend it and the students would never see that money. So we're talking about civilians were benefiting from this. Schools were benefiting. The government was benefiting. Um, this state is is built on the backs of of children. So hmm. there absolutely should be, you know, the state at least providing some sort of recompensation for that um, fact. I guess overall, something else you brought up, Joshua, that I, I want to ask you about is the coverage of this report initially. It's mm-hmm. like, <laughs> not hooray, but like, look it, we've discovered something now even more and we can move on from it. And what do you think was missing from the coverage of the initial report itself? Like how folks were reading about our history? Yeah, natives, you know? <laughs> like how are you gonna do this huge report about natives and celebrate yourself and not ask natives how they feel about it? Yeah. It is crazy to me. It, I, I, Why? What are you doing? How are you that tone deaf? Get a native friend, you know? <laughs> like they they yeah. cook good Fun food yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> Yo, that's why that's that's what's so crazy about me is because this this uh, they don't they don't they're they're culturally tone deaf because they don't have enough native americans in their life and that's is what it is and but but that needs to change um it's there's it's, it's just insane to me it's 2023 it's crazy to me that. It gets into the rep- the issue, too, of the reporting and the fact that we don't have folks representing communities that are reporting on their own communities right. as well. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's pretty telling that you're the first media organization to reach right. out to our commission to ask how we felt about it while there's a large group of non-natives patting themselves on the back to mm-hmm. the media um, about this. And I would extend that to your colleagues that maybe they ought to reexamine some of their processes and how they're reporting on stories like this as well. And understanding you're informing the narratives of everybody that reads that piece, you know, because to me, I read it and I I was like, there's something I don't know. There's a lot of things in here I don't know. Mm -hmm. I need to ask people that understand this from a fundamental level. I will never understand, but at least we can start that conversation. That's that's where some of the harm comes with this is that there's so many people that could be potentially allies uh, to Native Americans that have a misunderstanding of of the situation because of the reporting. And that's real hurt. This has been a known topic in our circles for since mm-hmm. I've been alive. That's why grandma doesn't talk about this because of yeah. the school. Dad doesn't like this because of the school. I feel like Raven, you shared a really sweet anecdote on Twitter of like a, a relative or ancestor of yours like burning oh, down. Oh yeah. School. My <laughs> And I was like, those are we want we want that story too, right? We want my to hear relative too. Martha Shagonavi. Um, so most of my family went to either Carlisle Indian Industrial School or Mount Pleasant um, School in Michigan. Carlisle's out of Pennsylvania, mm. and my relative Martha, she was 16 and she had just 
had it with the boarding schools. Um, she burnt down a laundry room. That didn't get her kicked out of school. Then she burnt down the dormitory. She didn't burn down the dormitory, but she started a fire and that didn't get her kicked out. So she set fire to the main building and burned it to the ground. Um, the school had to close for like two years. As it turns out, the Masons rebuilt that um, and had a big like oh, dedication boy. ceremony. So just going to throw some shade at them too right now. <laughs> Yo, now I'm going to have the Illuminati after me. I don't really know how those secret societies work. But in any case, she burned down the school and she finally got kicked out. Um, a lot of people on Twitter had actually asked me what happened to her because the news article said she got sent to like a reformatory, a punitive um, mm-hmm. school, Adrian Industrial. Um, the head matron, actually, there was an article that ran the next day, refused to take her because she was like, no, she's too bad. Mm. Um, she's going to burn this place down. So she ended up getting sent home. Um, and she wow. finally got to go home. But then um, she passed at the age of 21 from, um, they called it consumption, but tuberculosis. Oof. Um, but she but did she get to leave home. the school. Yeah. And just to remind everybody, Carlisle's motto was uh, kill the Indian, save the man. Oh. So, yeah, that's. Uh, I like to think that my existence is a giant F you to that entire motto. Because that's right. Still here, still Indian. Yeah, great that. earrings on. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Raven, Joshua, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, how gone it? Migwitch. And here's what else Denverites are talking about. A win for labor organizing. Kaiser Permanente workers went on a three-day strike a few weeks ago, calling for higher wages and better working conditions after, you know, they worked through an actual global pandemic. According to the SEIU Local 105, the deal includes wage increases of 21% over four years, among other compromises. The agreement announced Friday ends the possibility of an open-ended strike of 85,000 healthcare workers that would have happened later this month. And finally, Mayor Mike Johnston has backed off plans to build a micro community for people experiencing homelessness in the Golden Triangle due to, quote, additional complexities. Johnston initially planned two of these micro communities in the neighborhood, but Westward reports that the mayor faced overwhelming frustration at a community meeting last Thursday. Westward also reports that Johnston has reduced the proposed size of another site planned for the Overland neighborhood after, you guessed it, complaints from neighbors. Oh, and we've just booked Mayor Johnston for an interview to coincide with his 100th day in office. So if you have any questions about the micro communities or anything else he's been up to, send us a text or leave us a voicemail at 720-500-5418. Again, the questions for Mayor Johnston hotline is 720-500-5418. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute to tell Fort Lewis College President Tom Stridicus about us. Rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our morning newsletter, Hey Denver, and learn more about us at denver.citycast.fm. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. See you later. Okay, Stridicus. Tell Fort Lewis, Fort Lewis College President Stom, Stom Triticus. Tom Stridicus. Okay. <laughs>